This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Hello and welcome to Dollars and Change on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nick Ashburn. And I'm Sandy Hunt. And we join you here live every Tuesday morning from 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, and we are replayed throughout the week. Hi, Sandy. Hi, Nick. Good morning, and good morning, listeners. Good morning, listeners. It has been a while since you and I have hosted, I think. It really has. Yeah, so unlike some of our other shows, you know, we rotate hosts. Um, And so you might hear Catherine and Cheryl, Mm -hmm. Catherine and Sandy. Cheryl and Nick. I'm bad at this. How many combinations are there? <laughs> I don't know. See that we might need to ask our, our first Wharton guest uh, to do the do the math for us. Um, let's turn it over to our first guest because if you want to know about managing a, a an an his, an historic, I'm mm-hmm. I'm adding the a n for the h in historic, an historic nonprofit that has a long long history. Give us a call for that. Um, welcome to the show, Matt Rader, who's the president of the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. Welcome back to Wharton. Thank you very much. I haven't been here in a while, so it's good to be in the building and uh, talking with you all. Did you think about our math? Nice pen baseball cap here. (laughs) Indeed. I don't have the answer to your math question. Those (laughs) those escaped me shortly after the GMAT, so apologies. (laughs) That's fine. There's no test at the end of this segment. (laughs) All right, Matt. So let's start off. um, Why don't, like I said, the the PHS, the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society, has a long history. what is it? And and why might people not in Philadelphia actually know it? Yeah. So PHS is founded in 1827 in Philadelphia. And for the whole time since then, we've been committed to two ideas. One is getting people of all backgrounds involved in horticulture as a pursuit and also applying horticulture to do all the good that we can do in the world. And today that means environmental good, Uh, advancing social equity and making Philadelphia and other cities more livable. There's two reasons people really know PHS. The first is our Philadelphia Flower Show is the largest horticultural event in the country, uh, and it helps drive our membership, which extends to 49 states and more than 12 countries around the world. And I did not know. It was, I mean, I knew it was a big event it's and that it's a big deal. Amazing. I didn't know it was that. It had that reach. It yeah. is such an incredible event. It's an incredible thing. It's both 250,000 visitors. It's also the largest project that I like to say Philadelphians do together. So oh. exhibiting in the flower show is a personal pursuit. And you've got people from school kids and high school kids. You've got uh, press plant exhibitors from... Taiwan and China, you've got pros, you've got people in prison exhibiting plants. Like It's this amazing kind of crowdsource project of people from this region and beyond coming together to inspire people to get involved in, in horticulture. And how long has the PHS been around? Uh, 1827, we were founded, and the flower show first was held in 1829. Uh, wow. And we've been going since then. Wow. That's incredible. So we're really going on 200 years? We are. So we, we are uh, hoping to kick off a project this fall around sort of resetting our vision for the bicentennial. So laying out a 10-year strategy about what PHS aspires to be doing environmentally, socially, and urban quality of life by 2027. So for us, it's an exciting anniversary and one we're trying to use to really galvanize some new energy and new engagement in the institution. Yeah, and as we're talking about history, that, I mean, that's a, a challenge and an opportunity when you're at the helm of something that has 200 years of reputation behind it. 
it has the strength, it has the name recognition in a lot of ways, but it doesn't, it's not necessarily as nimble or, you know, doesn't come in as flashy as a new, you know, new nonprofit, new social enterprise. So talk to us about some of the challenges and opportunities you see in managing such a, you know, an institutional player in this really ecosystem. And bringing it into the 21st century. Yeah. So there's there's two dimensions, I would say. One is, um, with that much history, you have to be aware of the fact that any change is bending a long arc. Mm. So if you're making a change, it better be change that you're happy to live with for a long time. Uh, the second is PHS is incredibly diversified. So we have people participating in community gardening programs and tree planting programs and school programs from every neighborhood in Philadelphia uh, and the region, people far beyond every ethnic background, income background, et cetera, that you could imagine. And so doing change management well when you're working with that big of a community of people, so 25,000 members plus probably another five to 7,000 active volunteers, you have to do an incredibly good job of communicating around impact. So what are we trying to accomplish? And making sure you use the most uh, intelligent ways of getting that message out and understood by everybody because your success is determined by the the ability of that whole community to move together. It's actually more 21st century already than you would imagine because sort of managing the crowd and being an influencer rather than a command and control is kind of the nature of the beast in the modern world. And PHS has been working that way really throughout its history, but particularly since the 70s, where we're kind of enabling and inspiring and trying to lead this movement uh, and not just deliver all the services directly. So did did PHS, the uh, Pennsylvania Horticultural Society, did it start as like ladies who do gardening? Was it a professional endeavor back then? What what? How did it start? Because now, thinking of 21st century, you do pop-up beer gardens too, which we can talk more about, but just sort of like giving us a really the journey of, of what the organization has yeah. gone through. So at the roughest level, you can lay out kind of three or four major stages. So at the very beginning, it was not ladies, it was men. And it was guys Farmers. who were... Uh, you know, elite aristocrats really oh, okay. interested in gardening as a sophisticated pursuit mm. and a little bit in introducing plants that could have economic and cultural impact in Philly. I was just mm. reading about an old house that said it has a traditional library for sitting, thinking, reading and potting plants. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my gosh, that yeah, that used to be something like people did inside with this sort of sophisticated like keeping, you know, orchids and Oh, I had like no this. idea my husband's actually sophisticated because I get so mad when he pots plants in the house. <laughs> exactly. Michael, you're doing it right. You're a so. renaissance man. It's this sort of collecting and thinking and trading ideas. And there are horticultural societies in London and Philadelphia and Boston and many other places found at the same time. Fast forward into late 19th, early 20th century, it becomes a professional organization, both for floriculture, so florists which were emerging, and horticulture. And then in the late 19-teens, sort of a darkest period financially and programmatically in PHS's history. But I'm we, impressed it, it persisted. We persisted. That's so incredible. We, we pivoted in really 1917 to being amateur and sort of focusing very heavily on educating, engaging, inspiring home gardeners, partnering with garden clubs, uh, and then in the 1970s expanded that to include residents across Philadelphia, uh, gardening in their neighborhoods, planting trees in their neighborhoods. And we really captured, I think, the core of our mission today, which is um, inspiring people to garden, but also putting gardening to work to help 
address some of the toughest issues faced by neighborhoods, by society, environment, et cetera. It's kind of a beautiful, like, necessity is the mother of invention story that, you know, when, you know, depression happened, you had to look to, you know, gardens that were going to sustain people and helping people have the tools to feed their families. It's a pretty neat uh, pivot. And when you look at sort of photo documentation of flowers shown others, it's amazing. In the 1940s, it was Victory Gardens. In the 1930s, it was home gardening. In the 1830s, it was exotic orchids. 1890s, it's chrysanthemums. So it's whatever's happening kind of in the world. Oh, cool. And the poinsettia was introduced, first exhibited to Americans at the 1829 Flower Show, which is kind of a fun fact as an exotic Mexican plant that had been brought north. Uh, so, so a lot of interesting things that sort of trace. It is. Merry that's a, Christmas to us. Well, that's a coffee table book I would love to read. Sort of saying like, this is what the flower show looked like this year, and this is what do it reflects you guys do a in our world. Book? A coffee uh, table book. No, I'm just we, giving we you an idea. Oh, it's an it's interesting just a book idea. I'd love to read. A beautiful photo of the flower show, and then saying like, Here's this, what's what's this is what's happening in the world that was reflected. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. yeah. Did and and this last year's flower show, I think it was just last year, was Holland. The tulip really was the was the big. Piece. Yeah. So this year was Holland, and we tried to hit on two major themes of Holland. One was horticulture, so tulips and cut flowers. They're one of the biggest producers of cut flowers in the world, and uh, and sustainability. So Holland has really put greening to work as a way have, of creating yeah. a more sustainable. Uh, place to live. And so we did a lot of work to highlight their activities there, which are kind of two halves of our our work. And, and it's interesting still thinking about the history a little bit. So being from Kansas, like I think there are probably more people per capita who know a little bit more how to work in the ground and, and do some of this, this stuff. But I'm sure, you know, historically that was true for a majority of the country. And now, you know, not that many do. So it really does serve that purpose to bring that back to the masses to some degree. And then um, just thinking about the, your comment around Holland or, or the Netherlands and, and sustainability, is that playing a role in some of your programming, like sustainable agriculture and, and how you do this or horticulture? Yeah. So we, again, we're, we're always trying to put horticulture to use to address the issues that Philadelphia and other places most need to address. And sustainability is a major theme. So we educate people through Flower Show and other programs. We work with the Philadelphia Water Department to run a program where we help people tear up uh, impermeable paving and create rain gardens and do all kinds of things to make their homes more sustainable. We plant a couple thousand trees a year in partnership with neighbors across Philadelphia, all targeted at trying to drive the environmental sustainability of the city and similar programs around social equity issues and um, and quality of life. And you highlighted the pop-up gardens, which are one that does many, but a lot of it is just saying uh, horticulture is a really efficient and powerful way to take a blighted lot and make it uh, an amazing community resource. And you can do the same thing with your front stoop. This idea that horticulture is a great a great tool. I'm about to get a front stoop, and I'm very excited about what green we can do. So I'll have to I'll look at the resources for that. Go okay. for it. So I'm curious, Matt. You you have a unique challenge of measuring impact in a, at an organization where you've got hugely diverse programming, and also some tough sort of you know measurement challenges around you know how how do you measure the impact of a neighborhood once you add a pop-up garden how much is attributed to that versus other things so how do you guys measure success talk to us about what you look at to say this program's a winner we're doing things right so this this has been a ma- I've been at PHS for about 18 months and answering this has been a major priority we don't have the science down yet but the simplest is to say 
we took our mission, which is to connect people to horticulture and together create beautiful, healthy, sustainable communities. And we broke that down into four goals. And we try to ensure that any activity we're investing in or growing or continuing, you can make a good case that it's hitting on two or more of those goals. Oh, interesting, goals. two or more. We're trying to push towards even better impact measure and this Vision 2027 strategy that we're hoping to embark on this year. 2027? 2027. Ooh, so can't believe that's our bicentennial. <laughs> yeah, it's 10 years. But we're basically yeah. saying, w- what issues does Philadelphia and other Pennsylvania communities and other communities in this region need us to address? Where is horticulture best positioned to make impact? And then what should we do and how to measure it? So we're hoping over the next two years to answer that question and use that information to help uh, shape our programs going forward. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. And we're talking to Matt Rader, who is the president of the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society. And you may not have ever known that horticulture was so exciting. <laughs> I feel like it's NBR. <laughs> horticulture is so exciting. It really is. But it is. I mean, like, again, pop-up beer gardens. Who knew? So what, what are some of the fun new programs that you're looking at? Um, and maybe we can dive even further into you know, the new farm. Yeah. So the good part about us is even the things we've been doing forever, many people don't know. And so they're fun and interesting. So just to hit the high level, we've got uh, about 150 community gardens around Philadelphia that we actively support. Uh, We grow organic plants. We teach people to do organic agriculture. They grow for themselves and they also contribute back to food banks. We run a program with prisoners where we do training in prison and place them in reentry jobs maintain 12,000 lots around Philadelphia, and we take care of 12,000 lots. lots. Do you own them or are you just maintaining them? We steward them for the city uh, with funding from the city, but it's a program that uh, takes lots from blight into passive green spaces, wood rail fences, trees, and we employ people returning from prison and others uh, and help develop small businesses through that work. Uh, We also take care of some of the great free public gardens in Philadelphia, the Azalea Garden, the Art Museum Landscape, Logan Square, Rodin Museum, et cetera. Moving forward, uh, two projects I'll sort of hit on. One is we've talked we talked a little bit about Vision 2027, but two others. Uh, one is we've been working with the Free Library of Philadelphia in, with funding from William Penn Foundation and Knight Foundation to look at how we could use libraries and use horticulture as a way of making libraries even more important community centers than they are today. So engage people, educate them in horticulture, think about library landscape. We're, we're trying to think about how how that could work and where it could go, but it's an interesting, interesting thing to explore. Uh, and then other, you mentioned Farm for the City. So we've gotten a grant from the Pew Center for Arts and Heritage to create a container farm next summer right across the street from City Hall on the Municipal Services Building Plaza. Planning is early stage, but the goal is... And what the, is the, a container? You said a container yeah. farm? So building things in raised beds on that plaza because it's a piece of... Oh, so they're not going to rip it up. Granite. No. Uh-huh. It's a temporary project, and the goal is uh, to help people discover the richness of urban agriculture and food security issues in Philadelphia. So if you live in Center City, you cannot be aware of what is happening in neighborhood, good or bad. You may not know that there's a huge share of Philadelphians living with uh, food security issues. You may also not know the richness of urban ag. So our goal is through this project, by placing it right in the heart of the city, uh, to create a, a thing that actually inspires people to think about it and also create a rich variety of programming 
that will help people learn, discover the issues, and also get involved in growing. So it should be an amazing project. I think that's so cool because if if you are a listener and you have been to Philadelphia, C- City Hall is pretty much right smack dab in the center. Mm-hmm. And then there's a an area called Dilworth Plaza, which has just gotten a lot more foot traffic. And then there's Love Park, which has been under construction but will be reopening. So it is, it's a highly trafficked area, both for Philadelphians and for tourists. So it's such a great spot to expose people to these concepts. Yeah, and back to your question about impact. When we looked at it, we have uh, one of our goals is around using horticulture to transform public spaces in Philadelphia. So this does that. Uh, another goal is around engaging individuals in horticulture. This does that. And a third goal is around uh, addressing some of these tough social issues faced by neighborhoods, and this does that. So it's like it's a good three-time winner. And for us, uh, of course, always looking at how to increase uh, levels of engagement, levels of support for PHS. This is a chance to reach uh, some of the millennials we'll talk about later and others. Uh, and get them interested in their mission. Excellent. I want to sort of pull that thread around supporting PHS. So when it comes to to finance, when it comes to supporting this organization and and sort of farming in general and, and urban agriculture and these things, yeah, I think one, or at least I, often ask the question, like, is it worth it? Like, yes, I'm sure growing vegetables is more cost effective than buying them. But what are the upfront costs? How successful am I going to be? Am I going to spend $200 building a raised bed and buying soil and tools to get three carrots out of the deal? Like, if so, it doesn't matter how much I spend on a carrot. It's not going to be $70 each. My herb herb garden seems like a good return on investment. Exactly. (laughs) Even that, I struggle. You know, so so what's the economic case for individuals doing this? Or does it make sense to do it at a more collective level with, you know, CSAs and things like this? There's many different models being explored right now. For us, it has, it's not a economic business you'd want to go into the way we do it. But the focus has been uh, engaging as many people as possible in getting their hands in the dirt, growing, because in addition to the food, you're getting intangibles about awareness of healthy food. You're getting huge civic engagement. So getting diverse people into a garden together helps build empathy and cut across a lot of uh, polarization that defines society today. Uh, and it also helps produce more beautiful spaces in a community out of blight. So uh, if food was the only output, it's a pretty high-cost model. But if you think about the other outcomes, uh, it starts to become a pretty efficient way to deliver a healthier community in a, a lot of dimensions. Nice. And I imagine there's some impact to food waste for anyone involved in this project because it would be hard to see how much work goes into growing a tomato and then throw half of one away at the end of a meal. Yes. <laughs> so, no, so I think absolute. there are some sort of, you know, ancillary benefits. And just the basic understanding that food comes from the ground and plants. If you have an urban person, frankly, of any level of or socioeconomic background, they may not really know that that tomato comes from a plant. And there was a story told me before I started the job by a librarian in North Philly who grew tomatoes with her kids and when the first came on, this kid's like, what do we do with it now? She's like, you eat it. He goes, no, I eat the tomatoes from the grocery store. Oh. And she's like, it's, it's the same tomato. Oh. This one's just attached to a plant. And it was wow. this amazing kind of learning moment yeah. that sounds silly but is, is very real if sure. you've never thought about it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I mean, like I said, I would have a very different emotional response wasting food that I saw, you know, how much work it was to make it versus – Exactly, picking it up with a bunch of other things at a grocery store. And, and one of the simplest things in gardening in general, but particularly in the city, is 
with almost no resources, you can physically change your environment, right? If you plant a plant, uh, it may grow. It will likely grow if you pick the right one. And you've actually done it, and it's there now. And what may have been a, uh, a blighted place or a place over which you felt you had no influence, you've actually physically changed. And I that's an incredibly powerful thing, particularly at scale where you have a neighborhood, let's say, that's had a, a vacant lot that has been a source of you know, crime and blight and all of this, and suddenly you and your 10 neighbors go out and turn into a garden. It's it's an unbelievable thing, even yeah. at the simplest level. And I want to, you know, further that point by saying I didn't realize until we did some work with the city of Philadelphia in a program called Fast Forward how expensive a vacant lot is. You see a vacant lot and you think there's nothing happening, nothing positive, nothing negative. But a lot of crime happens in vacant lots, depending on the neighborhood. They're expensive to patrol. They're expensive to maintain. They're expensive to clean up. So even if, you know, you have a garden, you might say, you know, there's not a huge economic return to this or, you know, it's not making the revenue that a storefront would. It is having a tremendous amount of non-negative consequences that might otherwise be happening and be costing the taxpayer. So when you see things like that, it's not just how much it's taking it above sort of that even level. It's how much it's bringing it up from a possible negative scenario that would be there if not for this garden. We talked briefly about the 12,000 lots we maintained for the city through the land care program. And that program has been studied pretty heavily by Charlie Brannis, who was at Penn and has uh, moved to another university now. But huge public health, crime, housing value impacts just from taking a lot from blight to being grass, trees, fence, and mowed twice a month enormous impacts. And like you say, you're taking something from being a source of uh, stress, dismay, high blood pressure, cost, et cetera, to being just a nice passive lawn that you can take your lawn chair out and sit on if you want. And uh, it, it's it's a very low cost for very, very huge impact. We're speaking with Matt Rader, who's the president of Pennsylvania Horticultural Society. And Matt, I wanted to switch gears a little bit to talk, uh, come back to Farm for the City and talk about the partners and and who you're working with on this. So obviously the city must be some sort of partner in this. But then who's getting to use the food? Yeah, so we uh, obviously partnering with the city. Pew Center for Arts and Heritage is the funder. And we're partnering with Broad Street Ministries as well, and we're figuring out the, the logistics Such of this. Such a great group. Great group uh, working with homeless in, uh, individuals experiencing homelessness, and we're going to be supplying food there. We're also going to be uh, – the plan is to host at least a couple community suppers with them to bring people together uh, – individuals experiencing homelessness, other individuals to actually just learn about some of these food security issues in in Philadelphia and how they're being solved. So really trying to use – gardens are unbelievable ways of bringing together people from diverse points of view to build some understanding and empathy, and we're trying to use this farm to do that in the heart of Philadelphia. Yeah, I mean, I'm really. I didn't know about this initiative until this segment, and I'm really excited as a you know as a resident of Philadelphia. I saw, you know, I've really seen how Dilworth has changed that area, and even the winter garden that they had this year got a lot of foot traffic. So I fully imagine that this will be just as successful, probably way more actually. It will, and we're trying to think about engagement. You know, my mind we have to figure out logistics, but having even a planting bench down by the bus stop where people can participate in getting seeds into starter trays and engaging or just putting hands in dirt is all part of the idea of just 
it, you know, it's a little uh, uh, dropping a, a gardener a farm into the middle of the most hardscape part of the city is kind of surreal, but we're trying to make it a very uh, use that surrealness to create uh, awareness and sense of engagement. I think it sounds like a lovely start to a busy work day to stop and garden for a couple minutes on your <laughs> on your commute. I mean, it's like it's reminiscent of the uh, the Zen gardens of like the nineties. Yeah. You know, you have a little sand garden on your desk. Right? Yeah. There has to be something very positive to you know get your hands in the dirt to start the day, and you know it's yeah. kind of neat. It's yeah. it's that or eat lunch at your desk. <laughs> Right, exactly. (laughs) Which we are guilty of doing too much. And and Matt, I wanted to ask too, you know, you are a Wharton alum, you got your MBA here. You know, people may not initially think if you get your MBA, go run the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society. So where did that take you? How did you get there? And how are you using those sort of business skills to run this nonprofit? Yeah, so I left Wharton and went to McKinsey and worked on some big change programs for four years at McKinsey. And going to PHS was a simple choice, which was I wanted to do something to help uh, advance Philadelphia, which is a city I've lived in for a long time. And it was an enormous strategy and and change project. So to your question about impact, we have 40-plus named programs. We've had a complicated uh, financial system for quite a while and, and some results we're concerned about. And so it's really a question of how do we put all this good organizational history and infrastructure to work to deliver the most impact we possibly can for Philadelphia. And so in some ways, it's the clearest strategy project around. The actual being on the ground and working through the issues requires uh, a lot of understanding and thinking and getting to know all these different communities. But it was a really natural outgrowth of Warden. That's great. And our last question, when might we expect this this urban garden when can at we, City when Hall. Can we come start Next our days? summer, but in the short term, if you there are uh, more than 400 community gardens around Philadelphia and urban farms. So we encourage you to get out in the neighborhoods, explore. Bartram's Garden is a great place to head to where there's a large farm. Uh, Accessible just, by the, the trail now too, right? Trail and trolley. So no Excellent. excuse. And uh, if you ever need to learn where there's more farms or gardens, let us at PHS know and we're happy to connect you. That's great. And that's PHS Online. PHSonline.org. Great. Thank you so much, Matt. We've been speaking with Matt Rader, president of the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society. Stick with us. We're going to take a short break. But when we get back, we will be talking about coral reefs and the importance and, and the business models around restoring them. I may, we're taking urban gardens and now maybe gardens under the sea. <laughs> Stick with us. This is Dollars and Change on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Warden School. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.